0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. To me, this is a symptom that we're all concerned about right now, and not mm. the problem or the infection that we have to deal with.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the Cyberwire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co host Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben discusses a novel court decision on geofence warrants. I've got the story of a $228 million judgment in the first biometrics privacy class action to go to trial. And later in the show, my conversation with Bill Bernard. He's Managing Director of Solutions Architecture at DeepWatch. We're discussing industry pushback on cyber reporting regulations. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. at spycloud.com/cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com/cyberwire. All right, Ben, let's
2: jump right into things here. Why don't you start things off for us? So, my story comes from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, hmm. uh, and they write in about a uh, groundbreaking court decision coming from the state of California, a trial court there relating to geofence warrants. So, hmm. we've talked about geofence warrants a good deal. Right. But as a reminder, it's when you don't have individualized suspicion that somebody has committed a crime, you just want to collect all the metadata from uh, phones that were in a certain geographic location during a certain time period. Right. Uh, and this has presents major constitutional concerns because the Fourth Amendment has this particularity requirement. It says in the amendment you have to name either the persons or things to be searched or the things to be seized. Uh, it can't be a general warrant. That's why we have a Fourth Amendment in the first place. Hmm. So that brings us to this case. It was uh, an armed robbery in 2018 uh, in San Francisco. You know I cannot resist a San Francisco-based story. <laughs> Pull the
1: tug to your hometown.
2: It, it really is. I mean, it maybe just feels like a disproportionate amount of, a disproportionate number of these cases come from San Francisco, or maybe I'm just subconsciously finding them. But Right. Uh, so they, there were basically no leads on this armed robbery. Uh, and law enforcement requested geofence data from Google, and Google provided it. There was a bit of an iterative process where first uh, the Google provides the police with a list of de-identified devices uh, that were in this geographic area. Hmm. Police has the opportunity to narrow the devices in which they're interested and expand the geographic area to where those devices came from before the crime took place, uh, and then police have the opportunity to further narrow the devices in which they're interested. And that's when Google will de-anonymize that data. Hmm. Uh, what that means is there's only judicial involvement before that first step. And that's going to become a major source of concern on behalf of this court. Okay. Uh, so long story short, they uh, identify this individual by the name of Dawes, uh, who committed this allegedly committed this crime. He's arrested and charged and they are seeking to use evidence uh, from this geofence warrant for a conviction. Okay. And Dawes is trying to suppress the evidence, Ah. and the court uh, granted his motion to suppress this evidence. Really? So basically there are three things that you have to look at uh, on a Fourth Amendment case dealing with geofence warrants, and I think this court offers kind of a roadmap for future cases on this subject. Hmm. The first is the time frame. Is that time frame overbroad? Here, uh, law enforcement, the San Francisco Police Department, was requesting about two and a half hours worth of data. And the court said in, in that instance, that's okay. Two and mm-hmm. a half hours is not overbroad. That's a sufficiently small amount of time. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing they look at. Presumably they knew the exact time that the armed robbery took place. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so they wanted a little bit, you know, you go a little bit before so you can see people coming in and out of the area. Okay. Um so they the court here says that two and a half hours is reasonable. Okay. The next question is the uh, geographic location. So an overbroad search would be one where you include more of an area than is necessary to try and identify an individual who committed a crime. Hmm. Uh, And what the court says here is requesting data from a whole condensed or or an entire dense city block in the city of San Francisco is overbroad. And I think that's a really novel finding. What they said here is that there were 13 houses involved in uh, this geofence warrant, and that's going to include – possibly 100 people uh, who are completely innocent, uh, who now have their data swept up under this dragnet. And that's fundamentally unfair from a Fourth Amendment perspective. Hmm. So we now have a California court really pushing back against this overbroad geographical area. And in future cases, at least in in this district, law enforcement is going to have to uh, go a little narrower when requesting the geofence warrant. It's going to have to be either an individual house or or a couple of houses. And that's something that is a change from other cases uh, we've seen in the past. Hmm. Uh, So that is uh, kind of the second thing they look at. The third thing is about the process of getting the warrant itself. And one thing that was deeply concerning to the court here is uh, law enforcement requested the warrant from from Google or requested the geofence data from Google in front of a judge... Uh, And that happened once. But there's this further process where Google is going back with law enforcement to get a little bit uh, of information on the devices that were found in the geographic area and then de-anonymize the data. And all of that happens without judicial approval. Hmm. And that goes against Fourth Amendment principles of particularity. So we now have a a case here where in two of the three factors that courts are going to look at, the San Francisco Police Department wasn't particular enough in, in describing the location to be searched through this geofence warrant, and the warrant itself was overbroad. Hmm. Uh, the o- original warrant that authorized Google to turn over de-anonymized data from that geographic location should not have been extended to include that iterative process where Google is de-anonymizing the data. Hmm. Uh, so, I think this is going to be a really instructive case across the country for other geofence warrants. We kind of have perhaps a, sa- a standard settling in of how courts should look at whether these warrants are overbroad. Um, one thing that's also noteworthy about this case is that California has uh, a pretty robust statute in place uh, Cal ECPA, which is the Electronic Communications Privacy Act in California. Mm-hmm. Which is stronger than other states, so I think there's more of an interest in uh, criminal defendants in the state of California in getting this type of evidence suppressed than there would be in other states just because the sway of that statute is, is pretty strong. But I do think the way the court approached these issues uh, is certainly novel and something that might be an example to other courts across the country. Hmm.
1: So going back to issue number two, which was the, the broad the breadth of the the number of houses that they were looking at. Suppose uh, I'm imagining myself, you know, looking at a, a row of townhouses or row houses or whatever, you know, city city housing, right, right. close together. So imagine those 13 houses, you know, side by side. And uh, rather than asking for the 13, could I start with, the? I want these two, and then... I don't get anything from them. Can I go back to Google and say, all right, let's do the three, next yeah. two? Or just can I, you know, you're to you see where I'm going with this. Can I work my way down the row rather than asking for all 13 at once?
2: Yes, but I think what this court is saying here is you can't ask for two and then without getting a separate warrant, go back to law enforcement and say, let's expand it to four and six. I see. So That's I have to justify it in front of a judge.
1: My process.
2: Exactly. And that's what was so problematic about uh, law enforcement's relationship with Google here in the first place is they were authorized to perform the individual search. But then all of the back and forth that occurred after that, like, all right, we have some data. It's not quite good enough for us to effectuate an arrest. Can you help us out a little bit? Hmm. That type of conversation can't exist uh, to the extent that it exists without a separate warrant. I think that same principle would apply if you're trying to expand the geographic area. There is a real line drawing problem here uh, Mm. because you think, okay, one house is okay, two houses is okay. I mean, what's the limit? Is it four houses? Is it a a square footage amount? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really hard to know where to draw the line. I think other courts are going to have to wrestle with what is a pretty difficult standard to establish. All we know here is that a dense city block with 13 houses is overbroad. And one of the reasons it's overbroad is technology is so good that you really can be more exacting than that uh, mm. when you're talking about a, a geofence warrant. I mean, Google knows what they're doing. They can peg you at, uh, on the second floor of an apartment building.
1: Well, but to that point, I wonder because, I mean, imagine a high-rise apartment building, right? A GPS location— is like looking down on a map and putting a pin in it. But in a high rise apartment building, that could be 50 units. I think you've just
2: come up with a plot for season three of Only Murders in the Building. <laughs> Yes. Can we pitch yes. this to Steve Martin? Why not? Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, a lifelong
1: dream of mine to collaborate with him. So, well, sure. Yeah. Let's, what do we have to lose? And maybe
2: <laughs> if we just happen to meet Selena Gomez, that's fine, too. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I think that certainly becomes more difficult. I mean, San Francisco is dense. It's not as dense as New York City. Right. Uh, if we're talking about New York City, you could have a very narrow geographic location, uh, but it could be a... You know, thirty-story apartment building, right? And it would be very difficult. Would would that be overbroad because you'd be collecting from more than the just the innocent people in the thirteen houses in this case, but probably hundreds, several hundred innocent people uh, would would be uh, captured in that case. Mm-hmm. So I think that's another part of this line drawing problem. So what happens next? I mean, California makes these
1: rulings. And how does the how do courts around the rest of the country
2: look at this and consider this? What is that process? So this is just persuasive to other courts across the country. In mm. San Francisco, this has precedential value okay. in this trial court, meaning that the San Francisco Police Department, if they want to obtain a geofence warrant, are going to have to narrow their request uh, to make sure it doesn't cover as much of a geographic location. Okay. Uh, but across the country, I mean, So many courts at both the state and federal level are struggling with how to deal with this Fourth Amendment issue on geofence warrants. Hmm. And I think the approach the court here took could be instructive to those judges, um, particularly focusing on the lack of specificity as it relates to the location being searched. So I think that could be persuasive. Courts might take a completely separate approach, and I'm sure we'll talk about those (laughs) approaches when they present themselves, uh, but this was a novel way at least in my view, of how a court looks at this issue by kind of going through those three factors. Uh, And that's why I think it potentially could be persuasive. You know, there's a downside to this for opponents of geofence warrants. The court, even this uh, San Francisco District Court, which... Was suppressing this evidence said uh, geofence warrants generally don't per se run afoul of the Fourth Amendment. Hmm. Um, they still could be constitutional if they are uh, particular in what they're requesting. Uh, it's just the specifics of this one warrant that were not sufficiently particular and and it was overly broad. Hmm. So geofence warrants, I think um, it's just going to be one of those Fourth Amendment issues where we're going to get. Lots of different cases from lots of different jurisdictions, and it might take a long time for courts to develop some type of sensible uh, standard to how to evaluate these warrants. Is this uh, on on its way to the Supreme Court, do you think? It certainly could be on a path there. I think it's too early. Uh, we're not quite at the point in the process where, say, there's a disagreement among federal circuit courts. That's when you might see the case make it up to the Supreme Court. I see. Um, so I don't think we're on an immediate glide path to the Supreme Court, but I do think this is an issue that's ripe for the Supreme Court because there is going to be disagreements among circuits. Uh, just because I don't know if there's a natural way to develop a standard here that would be uniform across all of our different judicial systems. Well, could, I mean, in 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 the
1: fantasy world, we often talk about where uh, Congress comes up with a national federal privacy law. <laughs> Could that uh you know interrupt this court, its its journey
2: to the Supreme Court? It could. You know, Congress would have to come up with its own standard that was very particularized, and I think they would be reluctant to do that. I see. Largely because it is dependent on local factors. Mm. Um A certain number of houses or a certain square footage is going to mean one thing in a dense urban environment and a different thing in a rural environment. And it's hard to account for that in a statute. I don't know how (laughs) you would write that uh, to to make it a justiciable standard. And
1: you you lawyers love phrases like preponderance of the evidence and reasonable person would conclude – (laughs) Right? <laughs> yeah,
2: make it as vague as possible
1: so that nobody really knows what right. the standard is.
2: Right. And then, and then and then let the Supreme Court figure it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll punt it up to these nine uh individuals who will make all of our decisions for us. Right, right. All right. Well, interesting case. I mean, it, it's fascinating to
1: see the progress we make on these things, right? It happens slowly, but it's happening.
2: Yeah. I mean, I feel like we run across one of these geofence warrants, uh warrant cases. Every few months now, and they're kind of building atop one another, it is still a very novel issue, Mm -hmm. uh, but it is becoming a ubiquitous law enforcement tool. You can see why law enforcement loves it. I mean, I would have loved to have gone through historical crimes and figured out, all right, what were all of the devices? Who were all the individuals that were present at this particular location? Right. Uh, I mean, that's a very, very compelling law enforcement tool. Uh, so they're going to fight hard to to uh, be able to use it. All right. Well, we will have a link to that in our show notes. Um,
1: my story this week comes from the folks over at Bloomberg Law. This is reporting from Sky Whitley. Uh, and this is about a case uh, with Illinois' biometric privacy law. And they had their first case go through. Uh, and it resulted in a $228 million judgment So uh, there was a class of more than 45,000 truck drivers who were uh, led by a gentleman named Richard Rogers who alleged that he was required to scan his fingerprint to confirm his identity uh, and access uh, facilities at this organization called BNSF Railway Company uh, and that in order to basically go about his day-to-day, this fingerprint Scanning was required by the company, and he claimed on behalf of this class that uh, this violates Illinois' biometric privacy law, and it went to court, and they won, uh, and they were judged—or they were given—what's um, the word I'm looking for here, Ben? Um, they were They were granted <laughs> $228 million in a judgment uh, against this organization. Now the organization plans to appeal— Uh, They say, we disagree with and are disappointed by the jury's verdict and think the decision reflects a misunderstanding of key issues. Of course they do.
2: Yeah, Uh, (laughs) I'd say that too if I lost $228 million. Right, right.
1: But uh, this was a five-day trial in front of a jury, and they found that the company BNSF had recklessly or intentionally violated BIPA. And uh, BIPA is the uh, Biometric Information Privacy Act. That is the law in Illinois. Uh, so the jury found they violated BIPA, and with each violation of BIPA, it's a $5,000 fine. Uh, they said they violated it over 45,000 times, and that's the, how the math adds up to this large
2: judgment. What do you make of this, Ben? Yes, there are a couple of really interesting elements here. The first is it's interesting to see Illinois as the battleground. We know that Illinois was the first state to pass a biometrics privacy law. Right. Uh, And so a lot of the novel cases are going to come out of Illinois. There are a few unanswered questions here. For one, there is a separate state uh, case currently in front of the Illinois State Supreme Court Hmm. about whether a company can be fined only for their first violation against one individual or also for every subsequent violation. So that could really uh, determine the true number of damages here. (laughs) That would be quite a swing. $5,000
1: or $228
2: million. (laughs) Right. So you can imagine uh, an individual using their fingerprint once. If that's one violation and it's $5,000 to that individual, that might hurt the company, but it's not going to bankrupt them. Yeah. But if that person goes to work every single day, now you're talking about... 300 violations in a given year or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, that's really going to start to add up. So that is still under, uh, something that's still under consideration in front of the Illinois State Supreme Court. Uh, The other question here is the amount of damages. Juries are notoriously fickle when it comes to awarding damages, Hmm. and oftentimes an initial judgment uh, that a jury arrives at is going to be partially reversed on appeal. You see this in a lot of cases that have kind of like emotional baggage attached to it where it shocks the conscience. Mm. And the jury is just like, give the plaintiffs all the money because this is so offensive. If I were in that position and they uh, collected my biometric data without following the procedures laid out in BIPA, then I certainly would want to be compensated. And so the juries sometimes go a little bit overboard in awarding damages. So I'm interested if on appeal... The court says, yes, uh, BNSF violated the statute, but they're not liable for $228 million in damages. That's excessive. Mm-hmm. So those are two things that we are looking out for. Uh, but what this does mean is that organizations, both private and public in Illinois, are going to have to be far more conscientious about using any type of biometric data. Uh, and they're going to have to be concerned about getting sued in civil court and having to pay monetary judgments. And that's the intention of the law. The law is working uh, according to how it's supposed to work, where it's forcing companies to think about, do we really need to collect this biometric data considering all of the logistical hoops we have to jump through to make it legal in our state? Hmm. And that might discourage companies from using biometric data. Uh, So that could be the long-term consequence here. To what degree, if any, do you think a
1: judgment like this Affects a company that does business in all 50 states, including Illinois?
2: Well, for something like this, it probably has a bit of a limited impact because mm-hmm. if you're in all 50 states and you use in all in the 49 other states, you're using biometric data. It's not gonna be that hard for you to customize the experience of truck drivers in Illinois for right. those particular circumstances. I'm thinking of
1: like McDonald's, you know. They they're they operate they're ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. And and let's just say hypothetically McDonald's comes with a way for their employees to clock in and clock out using their fingerprint or a face scan or something biometric would they simply... The easiest thing
2: for them to do to just come up with a different way to do that in Illinois? Yeah. If it's effective in all other 49 states that don't have robust uh, biometric privacy laws, it's not that hard to change it for just one state. When mm-hmm. you see multiple states uh, coming up with these types of statutes and judgments being awarded in multiple states, maybe it would force a company like McDonald's to reconsider its nationwide practices. I don't think this would would be enough. Uh, You know, companies have to make changes to accommodate state, individual state laws all the time. We've talked about circumstances where the logistics are extremely difficult. So when Texas comes up with a statute that regulates social media content moderation, Mm. that's very difficult administratively for a large uh, social media conglomerate Mm -hmm. because it's hard to know which users are in Texas Um, you're putting together. Uh, algorithms and uh, certain practices that it's really hard to tailor that to an individual state. But for something like a practice for providing biometric data, I think it would be okay, acceptable for this company to to have some variants across states.
1: Is this one of those cases that, or that we see with class action uh, suits where suppose this goes through and the $228 million judgment stands and BNSF is on the hook for that, they pay it. Do the members of the class is is this likely? You know, they get a they get a five dollar check in the
2: mail or like. To, who does the fine go to? Well, the lawyers are going to get some of it. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, right. lawyers do that. They're the worst. <laughs> uh, I'm not very good at at uh, these types of mathematic calculations. Right. Uh, maybe you're better at estimating two hundred twenty-eight million divided by forty-five thousand truck drivers. Yeah. Uh, I think the amount is, if I had to ballpark it, uh, it would probably be a little more significant than those class action lawsuits (laughs) where there's a class action on behalf of Coca Cola for a defective can, and 30 million people bought Coca Cola bottles, and it's a judgment for (laughs) 60 million, and we all get $2. I don't think it's going to be like that. Okay. Um, It's not going to. make all of these plaintiffs rich that's for sure right uh, but I think it could be a considerable amount of, of damages per plaintiff yeah if I'm doing the math correctly in my head yeah it's interesting all right well another one to keep an
1: eye on right I mean for sure yeah all right well again we will have a link to that story in our show notes uh, we would love to hear from you if there's something that you would like us to consider to cover on the show you can email us it's caveat at the cyberwire dot com Then I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Bill Bernard. He is Managing Director of Solutions Architecture at a company called DeepWatch. And our conversation centered on the pushback we're seeing from industry on some of these cyber reporting regulations. Here's my conversation with Bill Bernard. The regulations
0: that we have in place today around the world, countries like India, the US, other places as well, a large part of them have been building up over time. We have HIPAA, we have GDPR, we we even have PCI, all sorts of things along those lines. But I really think in 2021, we saw that huge uptick in cybercrime as expressed as ransomware most of the time. Uh, And we saw concerns over paying ransom and things along those lines. We saw governments recognize that they couldn't leave that to the private industry to fix and to deal with Government was getting involved, whether it was the FBI here in the United States or CISA or et cetera, et cetera, uh, all getting very, very involved in this. And so, they've realized, of course, that they have no way of measuring their involvement. Um, as a very smart MythBuster once said, uh, "The difference between <laughs> screwing around and science is writing it down." Right. Same. Same is true here. If we don't keep records on cybercrime and how we're dealing with it and those sorts of things we can't tell how effective we're being. So I think that's been the genesis of it. Uh, I think, unfortunately, there's been a lack of consensus on what's the best practice for it. There's also been a problem with multiple departments in multiple different places wanting reporting for their specific purposes. And I think that's what's brought us to where we are today.
1: What's the push-pull kind of been like here? I mean, I think most organizations um, would agree that there needs to be a certain degree of reporting, but you know, everybody has their idea of what's ideal. Um, how do we meet in the middle there?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the industry has been, and by industry, I pretty much mean everybody out there with a business or a company, uh, mm. has been sort of skirting the issue a little bit. We've seen just in the past few months, a major data breach uh, of consumer data that was uh, hidden and uh, and covered up by a, a ride-sharing application company. We've seen um, other companies try to pass off major ransomware events as uh, uh, an undefined network interruption. Uh, we've seen them minimizing this, and so you know what did your parents do whenever they caught you doing something and you tried to lie about it they started paying way more attention they started making you report in do whatever keep tabs on you there's a little of that going on here right now i think so i think that yes government uh, has perhaps overreacted india i find is is has gone to a 6 hour reporting requirement that's a little scary uh, because i'm not even sure I'm not even sure you know what happened within six hours' time in a lot of companies. But peeling all of that back, you know, we're still at the point where we need that data. We need that data, and, and we we need it to inform the public when their data has been compromised. We need it so that the government can, again, try to figure out if they're being effective. Heck, we need it for the government to know who to go after and to see the patterns and to help warn other companies that weren't affected, because I think one of the most important things for this reporting is about not necessarily how does that reporting impact the customer or the the company rather that's being asked to report, but how do we make the internet and and just life in general a little bit safer for all the rest of the companies who could be next? Uh, so that's a uh, you know that's that's a big part of it to me that that we need to to work on. So companies, of course, maybe put themselves in this position. On the other hand. Governments have been maybe a little overbearing with some of the requirements. Um, But I think really the funniest part of this whole thing is, to me, this is a symptom that we're all concerned about right now and not Hmm. the problem or the infection that we have to deal with.
1: I think that's an excellent point. And one of the things I've noticed, and I'm curious for your take on, is it seems to me like with this discussion there tends to be a lack of nuance, and I find the diff- the parties talking past each other. you know if we if we used India's six hour reporting requirement just as a let's use it as a straw man example, you know, sure. for the sake of argument, um, you know, people say, well, six hours, that's way too quick. Uh, how, like as you said, how could we possibly know what's going on? Well, I would say fine. that and maybe that's the case. But is it unreasonable to say if you discover something within six hours, you have to say, something's happening here. We don't know what it is, but there's a chance there might be something happening here. And and that's it. Like, that doesn't seem unreasonable to me. I, I tend to agree. I mean, I think there's an opportunity
0: to think about this like reporting on a traffic incident.
1: Mm-hmm. I need
0: to know immediately if I should take a different highway into work because there's a jackknife semi, right? Mm-hmm. I, I need mm-hmm. to know that right now. I don't even necessarily need to know it's a jackknife semi. I just need to know that I-88 heading in towards Chicago is blocked. However, later that day, as I come home and I tune into the nightly news, it might be nice to get some more details. I think there's an opportunity here for sort of a two-tier response, a notification, "Uh uh-oh, something bad happened, and then the opportunity to say, and now we're going to take X amount of time to get the details and report back. I think that's reasonable. I think companies are are very scared for any bad press, though, mm. and I, I can see them pushing back on that. the 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 thing that I would remind them is the Home Depot is still in business, Target is still in business, TJ Maxx, as best as I can tell, is still in business. Um, and you know, <laughs> Colonial Pipeline is certainly still in business. Right? The list goes on. You know, these are transitory issues in terms of customer sentiment and things like that. You know, so so I think that may be a worry that these companies have that isn't as as fully baked, perhaps, as they're worried it is.
1: Mm-hmm. Are there other industries that, that we can use in an example? You know, I, I think about things like aviation, where, you know, reporting is, is part of their culture.
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, part of this is, um, I think the public companies especially are nervous because, they now have to publicly disclose all of this. I mean, they Mm. were supposed to anyway, but the new SEC rules are, you know, it's now a an an 8K, if I'm remembering the abbreviation correctly, or, or essentially you have to describe how this is a major material issue for your company. And with you know an average ransom payment last year in the $4 million number, if I remember the stats properly, I would imagine most publicly traded companies would have to consider that a material incident. And they just don't want to have to do it, right? They're, they're mm-hmm. nervous about what that means to their business. Uh, I think for private companies, one of the interesting things is we're seeing them balk over having to privately disclose that to the government as well, uh, mm. which I've, I've found interesting, right? There are some of the folks that, that have looked at uh, the Department of Homeland Security's TSA requirements and stuff, which have been put forth and rolled back a little bit and as still perhaps being onerous uh, because of the number of companies and the number of of industry verticals that now qualify as critical infrastructure in the United States. And I think, frankly, part of it is a little bit of what I mentioned before. I could have a company that's subject to HIPAA, PCI, privacy laws in all 50 states, plus the territories, plus Washington, D.C., you know, the SEC, CISA, you know, the Department of Homeland Security, all of these I need a small army of lawyers just to figure out who I'm supposed to tell what by when. Um, mm. And that doesn't even get to, did I have the ability to detect the problem in the first place and deal with the problem in the first place, which right. I think is really at the root of this issue for many companies.
1: Well, and you mentioned that earlier, that we're, it seems as though you know a lot of people are coming at this looking at the symptoms and not the true disease here. In your estimation, what is the disease? I
0: think the disease is companies have an inability to recognize security incidents when they are small and when they are containable and they don't notice them until the house is burning down, right? Uh, if if my fire system isn't good enough to tell that the wastebasket is on fire and it can only tell me once the drapes have caught fire and the couch has caught fire, the house is a loss. So how do we identify these things earlier on before there are a material breach before there's something that I have to put in my 8K report, things along those lines, I think that's a space. And and there's some industry research out there that I I think backs that opinion up. We at DeepWatch have have done some some uh, some investigation. We've we've commissioned a report things along those lines where we found that almost 40% of companies, a thousand employees at larger, don't actually have 24 by seven monitoring. Hmm. We found that almost 100% of respondents would like better, more accurate alerting, so that they can deal with things earlier on in the cycle before they become major events. If if we got ourselves to that point, I see the probability of having to announce a big breach becomes lower and lower and lower and lower. Um, you know, I think about back in 2021, the difference between Colonial Pipeline's breach and a breach that occurred at Amerigas. Amerigas lost one whole customer record, uh, and you wouldn't know anything about it. It happened about the same time unless you happened to see the notification that they sent to, I believe, was the Attorney General of New Hampshire. You know, an amazing difference there. We all know what happened with Colonial. Uh, Right. But yeah, and and that sort of a notification, that sort of a breach, you know what everybody said? Oh, good on them, bravo, right? Mm. They did it well. The colonial breach, of course, everybody went, "Uh oh, <laughs> quick! <laughs> I have to go hoard some gasoline." Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, I think, I, I think at the heart of it, if we were doing a better job in in companies and as you know, in information security industry, etc., at identifying these things before they turn into bigger problems, I, I think we wouldn't see the gnashing of teeth over these reporting requirements uh, like we do today.
1: Do you think we could make use of something, you know, the equivalent of of building codes for cyber? You know, if I'm putting up a commercial building, I have to have sprinklers. I have to have, you know, my my exit doors must swing out and those sorts of things. I don't, you know, my sprinklers sprinklers are on 24 hours a day. I don't turn them off at night when the the employees go home. Um, Is that a, a, a possible pathway here?
0: I mean, I love that concept. I love where you're going uh, with that. Uh, I think one of the one of the interesting things with it is um, you're going to see industry worried about how is that stifling growth, especially for the entrepreneur. How does that mm. ratchet up the cost of doing business? Now, I'm not sure I agree with that concern because, frankly, if you're not doing business securely, there's a cost you just haven't run into yet. That that would be a very interesting way to try to go about that. Um, you know, there there have been some fits and starts at that. Uh, the the current administration has put out some requirements. Uh, what a year and a half something uh, ago. Um, uh, there have been other steps. Uh, I know the Obama administration putting out the NIST CSF, trying to trying to encourage that, but not not making it a requirement the way you're talking about building codes are. It's a it's a very interesting idea that that could work i'd be i'd be curious to think about that some more and talk about that some more
1: yeah where do you suppose we're headed then i mean it it seems as though you know we have to head towards something where we have a little more certainty than what we have now as you look in your crystal ball any ideas where we might be going well i did drop that on the floor the other day so it's got a crack in it but <laughs>
0: um i would i would tell you that i think it's going to be fragmented for a while longer i think one of the things that there has to be an aha moment for folks is that a data breach is a data breach and maybe we have to stop treating a healthcare data breach different from a PII data breach, different from uh, you know this data breach and that data breach. And I love the fact that the Department of Homeland Security and uh, CISA have, have started down a path for some of that. They've started to sort of say, hey, here are some guidelines for everybody to follow. I would love to see them be able to do more of that. I'm just not sure here in the U.S. that's going to work with all the sort of fiefdoms in terms of who owns HIPAA and who owns this and who owns that. And you know, again, PCI isn't even part of the government, but it's got its own reporting rules that we've got to worry about. So I think it's going to remain fragmented for a while. The good news, though, is I think we're going to start seeing a little bit more internationally. We're going to see a lot of pressure on countries that maybe. Push out to be more aggressive than sort of some accepted reporting periods, like 72 hours versus six hours. I think we're going to see some countries start to draw that back a little bit as they recognize that uh, people aren't going to come play in their sandbox if they're overly restrictive. So I think there's some of that for us, but it, it's it's going to be tough for a while. And again, my advice to any company would be to think about how are you going to detect and respond to the things so that you. Deal with them before you have to report on them.
2: All right, Ben, what do you think? Really interesting. I mean, I am kind of curious that there has been a pushback from industry about these reporting requirements. Mm -hmm. I understand why that could potentially be harmful for an individual business. But the alternative is less uh, institutional knowledge about cyber threats uh, without hmm. this type of reporting, and that hurts everybody. Right? Or there could be a bigger stick than just a reporting requirement. There could be administrative fines, there could be criminal charges, Mm -hmm. Uh, there could be uh, civil damages for negligence. So I sort of think industry should be a little bit more satisfied with having this limited so far to to a simple reporting requirement, as administratively difficult as that could be. Yeah, be careful what you ask for. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) All
1: right. Well, again, our thanks to Bill Bernard. Uh, He is from Deep Watch. We appreciate him taking the time for us.